Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of The New Deal and co-host of An Honorable Profession. On today's episode, I talk with Georgia State Representative Phil Olalier, whose district includes parts of Atlanta and the city of East Point. Representative Olalier is a passionate education advocate who also serves as executive director of Next Gen Men and Women a nonprofit creating pathways of opportunity for under-resourced students to graduate prepared for college and career. We talk about his path into public service, starting with his life-changing experience in the Peace Corps, about Georgia's failed private schools voucher bill, which was defeated by a bipartisan coalition, and the recent ruling to redraw Republican-authored congressional and legislative maps that have diluted Black power in Georgia for generations. Keep listening to understand why Phil Alalaway is a dynamic rising star that you need to keep your eye on. All right, Phil Alalaway, welcome to an honorable profession. Thanks for having me, Debbie. I've been looking forward to this conversation, and little did I know that we were going to talk all kinds of crazy stuff that's happened in Georgia, which we will get to, but I'd love to get your thoughts. But it also struck me as I was getting ready for this interview, you were elected almost a year ago to the day, pretty much, I assume. So you have now been in the state legislature in the Georgia House for about a year. So I thought, what a, what a great time to just ask you, like, what's it been like for your first year? Maybe what surprised you about being in the legislature? I'll start with. Well, first off, it's great seeing you again. I think last time we spoke, I had my half-naked two-year-old in my lap. <laughs> you know, it was my favorite thing. I loved it. He's darling. <laughs> He's at the zoo. I don't think he's going to barge in. (laughs) Fair enough. This time, but it's been a whirlwind. Just grateful. It's an awesome responsibility, and you understand the the weight and the magnitude of what you've been called to do and to really center people and do your best job to be at the hip with the people, the neighborhoods, and communities you serve and represent. And so, because of all of that, it's been a lot of learning. Come in with your own ideas and interests and, and passions, and then you're forced to really check those assumptions up against the people who are having their own lived experiences and concerns and hopes and desires. And if you're doing your job well, you're connected to all of that and rolling those into public policy that can move our state forward. So it's been A lot of learning, which is great. I'm naturally intellectually curious and just love working new muscles and frankly, learning about the state. I live in Southeast Atlanta. I grew up in DeKalb County, about 30 minutes east of here. And that has been my world. And you realize very quickly how different your world is from someone down in Camden County or 
up in Clark County and different nooks and crannies across the state. It's, it's vast, it's unique, it's beautiful, it's diverse, and it's been great to be able to learn more about the state through the lived experiences of colleagues. I love that. And I wonder, just taking a step back for a second, I mean, what was it that prompted you to want to run for legislature in the first place? I know you've been doing public service, which I'd love to talk about, Peace Corps in particular, but what was for you was the leap to say, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring and run for public office? A little bit of craziness. No, I would say it's twofold. My upbringing in everyday, just working class family, my parents are immigrants. It was my mom, my dad, and us. We had no extended family nearby. They were navigating Georgia and workplaces in our community as immigrants and without a familial net to fall back into. And so we were smack dab up against the hardships that many other Georgians, immigrant or not, face and experience. And so I remember having to be at the bus stop at 5.30 and take two buses almost two hours every single day just to access a quality public education not really thinking too much of it back then, although my dad and I had some, well, more so my dad having a stern talking to with his son who was who just wanted to go to school with my friends down the street. And I didn't understand why I had to jump through 50 million hoops just to go to school. But that changed my life trajectory. And I grew up and look back on those times and experiences and no child should have to endure or push through what I had to push to, to access a quality education. And now fast forward, just given the work that I do with my nonprofit, Next Generation Men and Women, really working to do similar minded work, leveling playing fields for high school youth in Atlanta who live in parts of towns that are economically distressed and really building an ecosystem and a community of support and opportunity to plug our students into, to have exposure to career options and pathways beyond high school, to get excited about what's possible beyond the walls of a classroom or their surrounding community, and to marry that with the mentorship and support that teachers and college students provide. And I see myself in those young men and women. And so Redistricting happened, and I know we're going to be talking about that item in a second, but I was the neighborhood president at the time and had met quite a few local stakeholders through just the work, frankly. And when the maps came out, I was tapped and nudged by a few folks who I respected, admired, and consider it. My wife and I prayed on it. We were expecting. And my son was four months when we made the decision to just, as you said, throw our hat in the ring, get after it. Wow. That's a big decision. Yeah. With a four-month-old at home, that's a big decision. Important decision, but it sounds like you're so passionate about bringing some of those experiences to the legislature and helping people who are like you were growing up and like your family was. And one of the things about your organization that I just wanted to circle back on, you were talking a little bit about it. I really am, I think it's so powerful what you're doing. And I was reading about, you're the founding executive director, is correct, for, of that organization. So it was actually founded by three educators who were working out of Title I high schools and really wanted to connect young men at the time with local companies and colleges for uh, positive exposure opportunities. I've heard you speak about it. And one of the things I, I love 
so much a line that I've heard you use is we talk about an achievement gap, but this is actually an opportunity gap. And I just wonder if you want to expand on that, because I think that that's so important, right? It's what we provide people, as you were just talking about your trajectory and the school you went to, and then you ended up at Duke and Ivy League, and you were on a trajectory, as you said. And so, you know, but it's those opportunities that are provided people that allow for that, right? So I don't know if you want to say anything else about that kind of mindset. It's all about where we decide to locate and place blame. And so when you say it's an achievement gap, you're really putting the blame at the feet of the child to say it's your fault for not performing, for not having a test score or some educational outcome that we point to and view as successful, as opposed to really placing blame where it needs to be. And that's at the feet of grownups and adults to really do the work to make sure that our children, our educators and school leaders who lead, support, love on and pour into our children have exactly and everything that they need to do the job well, because our children are our most precious resource. And we're talking about the future of Georgia and the future of our country. And so we better be willing to invest wisely and and make sure that we're really shoring up uh, these gaps and opportunity that present themselves, unfortunately, for children who have no say in their zip code and have no say in their economic situation. And so I was lucky enough to have a single mom, Miss Brenda, my high school senior year. I had a single mom and was working at Waffle House and Best Buy to pay bills. And that gets in the way of your future plans because reality and the needs in the present take precedent. And luckily, she sat me down forcefully and saw more in myself than I saw in my own self and really sat me down and forced me to kind of walk through that Duke application. We got it in with a few minutes to spare. And that single individual, Miss Brenda, that single moment, again, these are life-altering, life-changing moments that don't just affect me. It affects my friends. It affects the people I worship with. It will have a direct impact on my son, August, and his future. And so these are micro examples of a larger challenge, but a great opportunity that we have before us to do right for our children. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing I've heard you talk about a lot, not only in the education space, but just in general is kind of in what you've alluded to and what you've been saying here, but it's breaking down barriers and having that be a through line for your service in public office. And of course, before that, again, with your nonprofit and being in the Peace Corps, but, you know, talk about maybe a little bit about kind of what that means to you and how we can do so much better than we are doing now. It's so interesting, Debbie, because I would say that the lifeblood of our programming experience are these exposure trips. And so we partner with 60 to 65 odd local companies, two-year technical colleges, four-year universities who really open their doors for our students to peer into, to step inside, to learn about different careers, professions, some of which they never knew existed. And to really start building some social capital relationships and confidence that they too can occupy a seat that they've seen a professional occupy. And our students board buses. We work predominantly on the south side of town and not sure how familiar you are with with Atlanta, but I mean, you can 
really look at a socioeconomic line of, of demarcation as being I-20, and that's the north-south split. And you look at educational outcomes, health outcomes, poverty, you name it, and it's probably less south of 20 than it is north of 20. And so we have the great fortune of having these partnerships and a programming experience where every single month, starting their ninth grade year, they're going to get on a bus and they're going to literally explore their hometown, their own community. And many of our students have never been to parts of Atlanta that are only a few miles down the road. And in Atlanta, I mean, you drive up 75, 85, a few exits, and the world changes. Those are powerful, powerful, immersive experiences for young people. I had a similar experience in my work experience, having to drive 15, 20 minutes outside of Stonemount to work at a Best Buy, to work at a Waffle House, but it was exposure nonetheless. I was able to meet people from all walks of life and immerse myself in my own town. And that stretched my imagination and gave me the confidence and agency to know that, you know what, maybe I can be there too. And maybe I should push harder. And when you have something that is yours as a young person that excites you, you're a lot more willing to push through those barriers to get it. Yeah, no, absolutely. There is just something about if you can see it, you can be it idea, right? Like if you're just not aware of the possibility, how can you possibly dream it, right? And so I think that's so exciting and powerful. And thank you for your work on that. Let's talk Georgia politics for a minute, because it's it was a big week last week. Probably our listeners know, hopefully, because they're mostly political junkies, but that the federal judge threw out the congressional map in Georgia on the basis that it violated the Civil Rights Act, and so or the Voting Rights Act, excuse me. So Tell us kind of what happened, where you go. I know the governor's called a special session for later in November. What does all this mean? And what do you think the outcome ultimately is here? I mean, it was, it was really hailed as a big win for Democrats. So tell us what you're seeing down there. It's huge. It's huge. We cannot deliver for our communities and the people that we love so dearly without having representation and frankly, power within the Georgia General Assembly to move things along. And unfortunately, the party that's in power here in Atlanta, both the House, Senate, and the executive are controlled by Republicans. And it's becoming a party of maintaining the status quo and not wanting to be open-minded and solutions-oriented around the very real and unique needs that Georgians have across the state. And more representation allows us to move away from a process that really is designed to allow elected officials to dictate and determine their own districts versus the districts and the people being able to dictate and determine their elected officials. And that has huge implications when we're talking about what issues are being prioritized, the types of investments being made in our human infrastructure, in programs across the state across education, housing, public safety, expanding Medicaid. And so the basis really rested on a set of maps that were most recently deemed unconstitutional because they violated the Voting Rights Act and diluted Black power and were discriminatory towards Black African-Americans here in the state. 
where over the course of 10 years, the black population has actually grown by half a million. The white population has decreased, yet black representation in black majority districts have decreased. So there's no real way to make it make sense. And so we're hopeful. We're hopeful that the judge's ruling allows us to come together and really put fairness and people and justice and inclusive representation at the center of the map making and design process so that we land on the map that, again, it's not about right, left. It's not about Democrat, Republican. It's about Georgians. It's about the people having fair, equal representation that amplifies their voice and that allows for a governing body that looks like, feels like, it looks like Georgia, frankly. It looks like Georgia. So we'll be back sooner rather than we expected. November 29th, the governor has called for a special session. We have until, I believe, December 8th to approve a new set of maps that have taken the guidance from the ruling into account. But we're also sober enough to watch out for shenanigans. And so we'll be there to ring the alarm, to fight and advocate for all Georgians, not just Democrats, not just those Democrats or Georgians in our districts, but to make sure that every Georgian from all parts and corners of the state has equal and just representation. By the way, December 8th is my birthday. So happy birthday to me. Good maps in Georgia. <laughs> That's what the president wants. <laughs> so it, this affected both congressional districts mostly, right? But also a handful of legislative districts too. Is that right? Yeah. So the guidance from the judge was that there needed to be one additional Black majority district. His guidance was the Western part of the state. Again, it's open to interpretation. Believe two additional Black majority Senate districts and five additional Black majority House districts. And again, when we currently are 13 seats away from having a voting majority in the House, and the closer we get it, it changes the working dynamics within the chamber so that we can actually have a bills and ideas and solutions assigned to committees and discussed in committees and brought to the floor for a vote because we have a little bit more power and say to frankly represent our residents. And so we're excited, we're hopeful, and we're just keeping our ears and our eyes open until the ink is dry and nothing is final and we've got a little bit more work to do. Sorry, just last question because I just find it so interesting. And you have to come to back together. The legislature has to come draw these maps, right? Because it's different in different states. There's independent commissions or you know, all the different things. So you've got till December 8th. You're looking out for shenanigans. Do you come together? And you're being very hopeful and optimistic, which I appreciate. I think that's the right way to go into it. But like, what happens if you can't come to a decision? Like, I just don't know. Like, what happens? I think that's a great question. I'm optimistic, but also very sober and pragmatic in knowing that we just don't have the power in a Republican-controlled House, Senate, and executive to really determine what the maps will look like outside of providing our view of what's inclusive and representative, which we will do. I know the House will 
is currently, if it's not already done, working on maps to present out and be a part of the committee process and discussions that will be forthcoming, as well as the Senate and Congress as well, and our congressional maps. And that's all we can do is put forth our vision of what's equal, what's fair, and what's inclusive of the entire state, regardless of of where you call home in Georgia, that the final maps are maps that allow for elected officials who can draw from your community, your lived experiences, your hopes, your dreams, your concerns, which just make for a more effective decision-making body. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I'm going to just stay hopeful with you because it's so important. George's really, you all have been on the front lines of democracy in so many ways, right? I mean, back to voter suppression concerns, you know, where ballot boxes were access to the ballot. I mean, there's just been so many issues in Georgia. And then, of course, you've got the trial of the former president going on in Georgia, just completely out of curiosity. I mean, I'm sure lots of people are listening and paying attention and, you know, following it. But like, is it feel different being in Georgia that the trial is taking place there and like all the ups and downs of the lawyers pleading guilty? Like, is it in your everyday just because you're there? Or is it, are you just kind of watching it on TV like the rest of us are? I would say that the buildup to and in, in those first few days after, especially just the former president having to go through an official booking process and being on the ground for the hour, maybe 90 minutes he was here before flying back north. But there's just too much work that needs to be done. And everyday hardworking Georgians aren't focused on that. They're focused on wages. They're focused on benefits. They're focused on how do we as a state provide world-class educational experiences for our children, really shoring up opportunity and support for all Georgians, especially those who need it the most. And so we're focused on the work at hand and we're trying to keep the distractions at bay. The former president, he has to go through the process like any other individual facing the many items that he's having to explain and justify to the American people. And we're going to remain focused on Georgia Georgians and the work ahead. Yeah, no, I think that that's right. And you make, I mean, look, it's important what's happening because it's about accountability and the rule of law. But I agree that you got to let that process play out and you're going to stay focused on the work that you're doing. So maybe let's talk a little bit more about that work for a minute. One of the big things that happened in Georgia, this legislative session was, of course, a pretty high profile public vouchers bill, which you were involved in defeating. It was interesting to me because it seemed like and you tell me if this is right, it seemed like there was a kind of an interesting coalition of some urban Democrats and rural Republicans who kind of came together to say, no, this is actually not going to help the people we want to help. And I thought that was fascinating from a political standpoint. So I'm wondering just kind of what you can tell us about how that ultimately played out. We were equally as surprised, Debbie, knowing that most bills aren't brought to the floor for a vote without having numbers in hand to support bringing that bill forward and knowing that it's going to pass. And so it was interesting during the process, and I spoke in the chamber against the bill vehemently. And again, there are points of connection, be it an urban, you call an urban part of town like I do, home or a more rural southern part of 
Georgia, there are things that we all care about as parents, as Georgians. And when you're talking about just the role that a public school and public education plays in civil society and the development and growth of our state's future, people pay attention and they go to bat to protect public educators, public schools, and our students. And so the private school scheme, voucher scheme, scam, whatever you want to call it, on its face is really the first step in the privatization of education and ruining public schools as we know them, especially here in the state where we're not even fully funding schools. We're one of six states across the U.S. that is not providing state allocated funds to schools to support children living in poverty. There are a whole host of needs on the ground within our classrooms and public schools that need attention from transportation costs and funding for those growing expenses being flat for the past 15 to 20 years, forcing superintendents impossible decisions and choices that ultimately wears down and decreases the resources that they have to invest in enrichment programming, mental health counseling, dual enrollment transportation, academic recovery work coming off of the pandemic, and the list goes on and on. And so I just don't really see a case or a way to justify a private school voucher plan that knowing that private schools on average cost about $12,000 and disposable income and And our bill is designated specifically for children and families of those children who attend the lowest 25% here in state. So the lowest quartile of performing schools, only those students and their families would be able to be eligible for a voucher. But $6,500 is only half of that. You're putting transportation on the backs of hardworking Georgians. They're having to feed their own children. It's We can't program or voucher our way out of our dismal education state. We have incredible, incredible stakeholders, workers, educators with ideas and determination and passion and love for the work that they do every single day. We just need to invest like many other states are investing in our public schools to give them the means and resources to do the work, to invest, grow, develop incredible, amazing, talented, curious Georgia children and future adults who will be contributing immensely to our state. Yeah. And I think it was really interesting how that played out with the coalition that came together to defeat it. I know that you are not only, of course, you're in the minority, you're playing defense a lot, but you're, you're also proactively pushing for and championing education reform bills. I know that people will find out soon that we had a new ideas idea challenge this year where we invited a bunch of people, to New Deal leaders, to give us their best ideas, and your idea did very well. Tell us a little bit about some of the things you're working for in addition to having to play defense. I would love to. So it was my first bill I sponsored. It's the title, the Georgia Educational Opportunity Act. And effectively, it provides resources and funding to schools to support children living in poverty. As I just mentioned, the disparities between 
low-income students in terms of test scores and educational outcomes versus higher-income students. We're 49th in the country in terms of that gap, that disparity between those two segments of students. And a student doesn't get to decide where they call home. They don't get to choose and pick their family's circumstances. And we should not allow a zip code or a child's economic situation predetermine their success. And so the act would really modernize our state's education funding formula, which is called the Quality Basic Education Formula, which was created a year after I was born and has not 1986, a long, long time ago, despite how young I look, a very long time ago. Hey, 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 I'm older than you are, but go ahead. <laughs> not that long ago. All right, it's go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> I was at an event last week and I thought I was in my late 20s, which is, which is wild. Thank you. <laughs> no, I'm a healthy full 38 and feeling it. There you go. We have not revised the funding formula in almost 40 years. And so this would create a funding characteristic similar to how we identify and then support and fund children with disabilities, children who are English English as a second language learners, gifted program students. Those characteristics and segments of students receive additional funds. And so this act was modeled off of a similar piece of legislation that was passed, I want to say 2021 in South Carolina. We are one of two states across the Southeast that currently does not provide any additional state funding for children living in poverty. You can probably guess who the other one is on that sterling list of two, but it would allocate roughly $1,500 if we matched the weight that South Carolina used per every student. And in the state, you're talking almost a half million, 500,000 children, uh, K through 12, living in poverty. We have a budget surplus this past year of four or five billion dollars. So it would be a seventh, one eighth of that. And it would do a world of good and provide real tangible benefits for our educators and our schools who are trying to do so much with so very little. Yeah, it's so exciting and so important. Do you feel like there's a chance Particularly because, as you said, this is a lot of other Southeastern states are making the same decision or have already done it. Do you feel like there's a good path for passage here? We'll see, Debbie. It's honestly, it's a bipartisan bill supported by a friend of mine and a Republican colleague who serves a rural part of Southern Georgia. We created a study committee as an accompanying piece of legislation just to run the numbers and to hear from subject matter experts how beneficial this piece of legislation would be to all parts of the state. But it has to be a priority. And the track record and what I'm seeing from the governor all the way down is it's not a fiscal conservatism. It's just negligence in really overlooking the real and present needs that our children, again, our most precious resource. This is the easiest and best investment in ROI that we could want for our state. And we're going to continue to have the conversation and stretch our arms out to 
any and all who are interested in doing more for our children in our public schools. Yeah. Well, it's like you said, it's a choice of priorities, right? And these investments are going to get made and it's, it's what you choose to invest in, which is, and so, and I don't think there's anything more important than, than kids as you're talking about. So we'll be watching that. Maybe I'll end with a last question, kind of where we started, which was about kind of your own path to service. I didn't have a chance earlier to ask you maybe a little bit about the Peace Corps it specifically, just because I, you know, I, I'm such a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of national service. I mean, just I think that service is generally speaking such a important, you know, it's what animated my career. You know, it, it's clearly something that's super important to you. You know, just anything that you are seeing right now in this kind of tough time that we're living in about the value and importance of service. Yeah, I mean, the Peace Corps had such an indelible impact on me as a human being, as just all phases, as a son, as a father, as an executive director, and now as an elected official, you really are tested to see how far are you willing to go to put others before yourself and build this capacity to not rush to judgment, but to inquire more to really be proximate to people in community. And again, in the Philippines, it's a completely different cultural context, language. There is absolutely nothing that I could have picked up from a book to orient me for what was three years of just learning and determination and drive and failures and success and, and learning from those failures to build on future successes and a willingness to not really care so much about my idea or your idea, but it's about forward, moving forward. It's about progress because the needs are that great. And so I've tried to bring that spirit with me and to my work with NextGen and trying to hold on to and, and tap into that spirit down underneath the gold dome here in Atlanta, really to just center people and center ideas and solutions and not get hung up on your idea or my idea or prescriptive path to getting to that final destination, but keeping an open mind, being willing to learn and to adapt along the way, but drive and just figure things out and problem solve and troubleshoot, but get it done. And so that doer mentality and, and flying around and, and making things happen I loved that about the Peace Corps. It was so much fun and was not wearing a sport coat. I was wearing jorts and chacos and rainbow sandals and working underneath an old bridge. My office was a Nipah hut and we were tasked with Pastor Edwin and his wife, Perla. We were tasked with the livelihoods of 300 plus indigenous folks squatting underneath this bridge and really starting from the basics and working our way up and listening to, well, what do you need? And ranking and filing and prioritizing from there, building that trust and credibility that goes such a long way to the success of any sort of community-driven project. And I fell in love with the work. And it's what drew me into the nonprofit space when I moved back to Atlanta. It's what drew me to elected office, just having this blind stubbornness that Good things can happen and we can find a path forward. And it's about gumption. It's about a level of curiosity to, again, not judge, but listen and learn and, and find a path forward. And so I'm hopeful. I'm sober. 
you know, the realities are the realities, but life is not static and things will change and hopefully change for the better. Well, I think that sounds like an amazing place to end it. You've filled my heart up. You and people like you around the country who are out there putting themselves on the front lines to do the hard work in what's a really difficult time are really what inspire me every day. So thank you for what you are doing. I'm super excited to have you part of New Deal. Super excited to see you at our conference coming up in a few weeks. And just a, a huge thank you for all you're doing every day for the people of Georgia. Thank you, Debbie. Grateful to be a part of this amazing community and cannot wait to see you next month up in D.C. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.